there's this very specific feeling and it's when you've had an idea or you've talked about something with someone maybe you've you've even published it but i mean you just being you you're not a well-known person it's just it's an idea you had and then you see somebody talking about that on a much more public platform like just to give an example let's say that you talked about something with your friends that you predicted something and then a newspaper article comes out and somebody is basically communicating that same idea like there's a part of you that would be like oh see like i was on to something a part part of it's like it validates your idea but then there's another part of it that's like well i came up with it first And that happens sometimes. And what's interesting is we now have insight into that in other people's minds. Like, that's something that I think we've all felt one way or another. Like, I know there are certain things, especially certain friends I have. I realize we're always, uh, <laughs> we're always prophesying. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I was thinking, like, like with some of my friends, like, we're always basically like, like, <laughs> this is so funny to me right now, but we're always basically like, coming up with prophecies that we share with each other, just casual prophecies where we're like, oh, you notice that people are doing this? Like, you realize that, like, this is going to happen in two years, you know? Like, basically predicting trends. It's not even anything sophisticated. It's pretty much just talking shit. But it turns out a lot of predicting the future, a lot of prophesying is actually just talking shit. Like, nobody said that a prophecy has to be somebody being like, Ah, in 20 moons, in 20 moons, a man will ride here on a, a horse. The horse will be speckled. You know, it's like it, a prophecy doesn't have to be grandiose. It doesn't have to be archaic. You know, a lot of prophesying in my experience is just talking shit. Like being, ah, oh, I bet people are going to do this. Oh no, you see you see that people are doing this? Well in two years they're gonna do this. Like, that's pretty much honestly the level of sophistication that any prophecy I have is. You, you know what I mean? That's that's pretty much as sophisticated as it gets. It's basically just like complaining in advance. It's just <laughs> it's pretty much what it is. It's just like hey, I'm gonna complain about this before it happens because I can easily see it happen. And I, I have to say, I feel like I'm pretty good at predicting the things that are gonna piss me off. If I'm horrible at everything else, like if if all of my predictions are inaccurate, other than that, I can tell you that I have a pretty dang good track record when it comes to predicting things I'm gonna be bothered by, disturbed by, things I'm gonna hate. And that makes sense because you think about what I notice, like what crosses my radar. A lot of the things that cross your radar are going to be there because of that negativity bias. You notice them because you don't like them. Or you notice them because something seems weird or off. Just it offends your taste. You know, like a lot of the things that end up on your radar are going to be... You're going to kind of put them in, in either this like lukewarm territory where you don't know what to think about them... Or they're going to be things that are already bad. That's kind of how you know my radar works, at least. And so it makes sense that the things that I'm thinking about in the future are going to be based on that. So, like my friends and I do that a lot. Like we we make prophecies to each other, casual prophecies. And then when they end up being true or somebody else who's a more public figure says the same thing later on, we always like show it to each other like proof or something like see or or remember we talked about this but there's always a part of it that's like both validation like it's nice to see that somebody else is confirming my ideas or it's nice to see that like things did turn out how i thought they would and it, again it validates or confirms my prediction my prophecy but there is a part of it that's total ego you know there is a part of it that, like this is my jewel this is my jewel, and it bothers me that somebody else is getting credit for it. So that's a, that's a feeling that I've had. I know my close friends have had, and not that we're even total egomaniacs. I mean, I think we are. Like, I think, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, 
you know, it's not even just that. I think it's just something that you inevitably do as a human being because I feel like everybody I know, I've heard them say things like this, but it's something that you didn't used to be able to see when it came to public figures. You didn't used to be able to see people who were famous or even not even necessarily famous, but just somebody who has some sort of niche status, like somebody who's known in a particular field or they're on their way up. But we can see into all those people's minds today. And I see it occasionally, like I'll I'll just be on social media or something and just there's people I pay attention to. And you're not just getting like what these people are known for, like you're not just experiencing their music, their art, their writing, you know, you're not just experiencing that. And then maybe the occasional interview, the occasional biographical information, you're actually seeing those people express themselves. And I noticed this with people who are kind of not super well known, but maybe they do have some sort of following for doing something, but they're not celebrities necessarily, but just people who have kind of gotten known for just just a, known for doing something <laughs> be as general as possible there but i'll see where like sometimes you see those people react to stuff that's going on and they do it and these are people who are fairly accomplished but you see where they're like i wrote about this on this date and now this big newspaper did an article about it or this famous person called out the same thing And you can see where their thought process ends up being the exact same as my experience with it, which is on one hand validation, on the other hand, well, hey, I said I did it first. I thought it first, but the reality is, is like anything that you can think of, obviously somebody else can, especially if it involves something social or cultural, because that tends to be what it is in most cases, like even for me. Like when I'm making some prophecy, it's usually some, it's usually about something social or cultural. And I found that with other people I know, when they kind of make predictions, it tends to be social and cultural too. And if, if you're making some sort of observation of, so, of society and culture, like of course somebody else is going to be able to do that. They might not be from your exact background. They might not have your exact points of reference, but there's a good chance they're going to kind of discover it as well. And so sometimes it's just that, it's just somebody else thought of it too, because it's easy to do that. There's nothing new under the sun. But people do that about restaurants, you know, it it really has no limits. It really never ends. You know, somebody who's been to a restaurant before anybody else, it's like, oh, you know, I, I used to go there first. I discovered that restaurant before... Oh, all my friends are going to this restaurant now. And I was the first one. They heard about it from me. Oh, you know about that from me. That's something that I experienced in childhood, teenage years, especially when people are... I don't even think that... I don't think that teenagers are necessarily more petty than adults. I think adults learn how to hide their pettiness more. A lot of them. You know, a lot of people do figure it out. But then again, there were a lot of teenagers and I'm amazed looking back at them. Like, they seemed to have figured it out way back then. But... You know, with teenagers, it's like the pettiness is much more raw. They haven't learned to hide it yet, like adults do. And so you'll see these really, like, snap reactions to things. You'll see where somebody just, their insecurity or whatever it is inside of them, just, they can't restrain it. And, uh, like, I remember this experience where, like, somebody would be talking and somebody might say, like, oh, yeah, I was listening to, uh... I was listening to Radiohead last night, and then like another friend snaps and just like is like, "You only you know them because of me. You you only know them because of me." It's it's hilarious, and I'm sure I've done that. You know, I'm sure I've done that. It's just it's it's something you do, but it's like this idea that like if somebody's talking up, if you basically the idea behind that is if you introduced somebody to something. And now they're talking about it in your presence. You almost feel like they have to give you credit. Like they have to say like, Oh, I was listening to Radiohead last night. And, uh, well, I I know about them because Mike introduced me. You're just like, you're not going to do that just to talk about something every time you bring it up. Like you're not going to like satisfy your friend's ego, Mike's ego. It's what we call satisfying Mike's ego. 
doing a little, <laughs> doing a little satisfying Mike's ego. <laughs> uh, but you're not going to just say that every time, but there's like something inside of Mike who's like, you only know about them. You heard about it from me. You heard about them from me. So like, oh, I was, I was going down to the burrito shop. I was going down to the burrito shop. And, and then Mike's like, you, you only know about that burrito shop because of me. Oh, I was the first one to go to that burrito shop. But if you pay attention, people are doing this all the time. Adults do it all the time. Turns out adults do it about restaurants. Kids don't do that about restaurants. If you see kids arguing about a restaurant, like if you see a kid trying to act like he was the first one to go to a restaurant before all his friends, something's very wrong. So, you can, so adults do this with things like restaurants. Like kids tend to do it with bands. Teenagers tend to do it with bands. Adults tend to do it with things like restaurants, vacation spots. It just gets worse. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. The things that people... Like I would rather fight over bands. That's why like on every night to school night, I've always made it a point where if I play something that was introduced to me by a friend of mine... I know I've probably forgotten once or twice, but I do try to make it a point to say who sent it to me, who told me about it, who played it for me the first time. You know, it's like, I don't need to take credit for that. And actually the people I know who introduce me to music in most cases, if they're, if they're my good friends, they want credit. <laughs> they, 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 they don't want me pretending that I found it because they're jewel hunters, you know, just the same as me. So I try to do that. Because I know, I know, I know how I would, <laughs> I know how I would feel in that situation. But uh, no, it, it is the endless pursuit of jewels, and I won't turn this into another endless pursuit of jewels episode. But it is kind of that, and like as you become an adult, it's like it's not that the pettiness disappears. It's not that the desire to like claim something as yours disappears. It's that uh, you get better at hiding it in some cases. Or you focus it on things that seem important. Like when you're an adult, a restaurant seems really important. It seems so important to have taste in restaurants and to go to restaurants and to be able to talk about restaurants. I'm not saying not to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying that's uncool, even though it is. No, but obviously people love restaurants. But as an adult, it's like very easy to think that like, Oh, you know, that pettiness. Oh, I'm, I'm no longer a pet. Oh, teenagers? Teenagers just argue about, like, who heard what band foist. Meanwhile, you're sitting there thinking, like, well, I, let's not tell anybody about our secret restaurant. Because we don't want to see our friends there. We don't want to tell our friends about the good food because it's our secret restaurant, our little hole in the wall. You know, it's like you can easily trick yourself by focusing on shit like that. But it's that shit's even more absurd. And it's funny to see that, though, like I was getting out, like it's funny that we have insight into that now where you'll even see it with very famous people. You get to see very successful, accomplished people, celebrities, you get to see them now be very petty. And it's not just the social media, Twitter type accounts where they do this, although they do it a lot on there. And you learn a lot from even even a very polished celebrity, like if they express themselves on there, you learn something about their psychology, and if they never say anything bad, like if they never talk any shit, that's actually pretty incredible too. Like that says something about them as well. Like that shows you their professionalism or their discipline or just their disinterest in communicating that way. But it's it's pretty incredible because, you know, the way technology is developed, the way digital technology is developed, you know, it's it's brought us a little bit higher, you know, to the sky, but it's brought the stars down a little closer. So we're a little bit closer to celebrities, like you can interact with them and they might very well read what you say right when you say it. Like, think about that. Like you think about fan mail and things like that, where it's like you send fan mail, you don't even know if the person actually reads it. They send back an autographed eight by 10. That was just the classic style. That was pretty much the most you're going to get unless you happen to run into a celebrity backstage or in public. But even then, it's like you're not like really interacting with them. It's, it's all going to be very superficial at the very least. But with the stars being brought down a little closer and us being raised up a little higher, you can now have this direct interaction where like if a celebrity tweets something, 
you can reply to that. And I do this all the time. I reply. That's one of my big hobbies. I, I have so much time for tweeting at celebrities. No, but you can, you can, you can tweet in response to them. And there's a reasonable chance that they might read that right away. And they might even respond. Like, obviously, they get so many responses, they don't look at everything, they don't respond to everything. There are celebrities who claim they don't look at any of that. But there's also a good chance that they're going to read it. And we see that. We can see that they do. They'll interact with people. They'll get in fights with the people. So that's an interesting thing in and of itself. That like You can immediately contact a celebrity and, and actually interact with them in the raw because they might be in a bad mood. They might be argumentative. You might be argumentative. Who knows? It's a whole new world, though, in that way. And you can see where the people have chosen to throw rotten tomatoes at these celebrities. Like just the endless hostility and negativity that is directed at famous people, even people who are completely undeserving. Like, yeah, you expected it with Trumpsfeld. Like you expected that like if Trumpsfeld did a tweet, it's going to have a bunch of extremely vicious, angry responses. You expect that. Some people, it just kind of makes sense that that's what the response is going to be. But like every once in a while, you'll hear about something going on. Like there was something going on months ago. It might have been around election time. And it was like some actor like Chris Pratt was under fire because people found out he was a Republican. And, and then so he was just getting this massive amount of hate directed to him. And this is so interesting that it's like people thought that guy deserves really angry, mean, petty comments. Like somebody thought that that's what you need to do. And so that's what happens, though, when you give people that ability. Yeah, people could write a hate letter through the mail and sneak it. It'll, it'll sneak in with the fan mail. But the idea of like immediately just doing whatever you can to like, you know, it's again that instantaneous thing. You know, yesterday I was that off, you know, I, I apologize for that last episode. I think that was a particularly fragmented late night. I hope that a couple ideas made sense. Uh, but anyway, like I, I was talking about just when things are instantaneous, like when we can get instant gratification, it's a cliche, but it's like those things are often bad for you. They're often bad for other people. And that's what having instant access to celebrities has given us. It allows people to be mean. And they'll do it to just completely unsuspecting people for the most trivial reasons. And it's just accepted that that's how it works. People, Everybody talks about it. Everybody knows it. But we've just accepted that that's the way things work. If you give people access to famous people, they're going to want to scream at them. They're going to want to shriek. There's a lot of shrieking is what we're finding out when you give people the ability to instantly interact with notable people or even just everybody. You know, we're finding out there's a lot of shrieking when it comes to total strangers talking to each other. Sometimes even people who know each other. Doing a lot of shrieking. But, yeah, you know, there is that idea, though, where it's like somebody said something that I thought of before they did or that I said independently. And now they're saying it. I'm both validated, but I also want a little credit. But then it's interesting, though, when somebody's proven wrong. Or just when our contemporary narcissism gets totally checked. And this is maybe a little bit of a segue. I don't know if I can, I don't know if it follows what I'm talking about so far, but it just crossed my mind. Where I heard recently that they found evidence <clears throat> that Europeans were in North America far earlier than was previously known. I don't know all the details, you know, some of that stuff. I, I just, I read it and I take in the main points, but that was the main point is just, there are signs that Europeans were in North America far earlier than was believed to where they actually, if, if, I'm, if I understood it right, they actually predate Native Americans, what we call Native Americans. 
if I understood it right, that's kind of what it was getting at. And they found evidence, too, that there's garb that was worn by Native Americans in North America that closely resembled the garb of Germanic tribes. You know, and obviously some of that's going to be a coincidence, maybe. Like, you only have access to so many materials, so you're going to use fur. You know, there's a reason why a lot of tribes would use, you know, an animal skin and keep the head and wear the head over their, you know, kind of like a hood. You know, it seems like the interesting thing about paganism and, you know, tribal spirituality, whatever you want to call it, is like it, it often gets into animism all across the world. It's like people naturally seem to gravitate toward that idea. Having that spiritual relationship to animals and using animals to decorate yourself, especially in a ceremonial way. So some of that could just be the fact that we as human beings tend to do that. But they did find some evidence that the garb was strikingly similar. And this new thing that came out in the last week said that, yeah, there's signs that Europeans were here far, far earlier than anybody previously knew. And if I understood it right, yeah, it was maybe even earlier than any other known people, or at least around that time. And that challenges so much of our perception. Because I guess there were people who were saying that much earlier, and people dismissed them. They felt like it was Eurocentric. And I might have some of this a little bit wrong. I, I very well might. But you know, so there were people who had floated this idea, and maybe they had some reason to believe that, but they were dismissed, called Eurocentric. And so those people are probably thinking, well, hey, this is what I was thinking all along. This is what I was saying all along. So it must be validating, but also it might kind of rub against you a little bit when that happens. But it, it kind of blows your mind, though. Because you think about like how much of our understanding of our country and the world we live in comes from just these commonly held beliefs. You know, it's, it's hard for me to understand. You know, we can't even comprehend what America was before a certain point. And we're lucky if we even have a little bit of an idea, you know, in the in the span of recorded history. We're lucky, if, we're lucky if we even have a little bit of an idea. And it kind of plays into what I was talking about a little while back about how our, our perception of history is basically a caricature of history. Like, we're lucky if the era that we live in will be captured by a caricature of American Idol. Like, we are lucky. And I don't, I don't mean to use that as, like, a dismissive thing, like our culture boils down to just American Idol. I'm just trying to use something very obvious. And I think we're lucky if the caricatures of our most famous people carry on. And so we have to remember that about the past, too. It's like we might very well be seeing a caricature of what the past was, and we know that history can be rewritten, history can be deliberately distorted and changed, you know, we know all that. So it's like, there's a certain amount of faith. You know, if you just want to talk about faith outside of religion, outside of spirituality, like just think about the faith that you have to have in history. And finding out that Europeans were here much earlier, I think that would challenge somebody's faith. That should be bigger news. But it's funny that how sometimes you don't even hear the news. Like, you know, I, I, I heard my entire life that dinosaurs were believed to be related to birds. I recall hearing that even when I was a little kid. I think that idea has been around for a very long time, that dinosaurs and birds, and, and birds and reptiles for that matter, are related. And I'd heard stories, like I'd heard in passing, like, oh yeah, we think that some dinosaurs had wings. Or, fe or sorry, feathers. I've heard all that, but I didn't know until just the other day that the velociraptor now is believed to have just been a bird. I had no idea that they had confirmed that. 
And that, it's funny how that changes everything. Like that changes, you know, so much of our perception of dinosaurs is what Jurassic Park. You know, how many people, when they think of dinosaurs, imagine them exactly as they're depicted in Jurassic Park? Probably a lot of people. That movie brought dinosaurs to life for people in a way that few things have. And you think about the velociraptors being practically the main characters of that movie. But they didn't look like that. Now we know that they actually had feathers. They looked like birds. And that would completely change that movie, you know? Like if if these two velociraptors were running around looking like birds with just feathers everywhere. Like supposedly like their little arms... Their little arms supposedly had pretty big feathers on them. They didn't fly or anything. And then their tails were supposedly like these big, elaborate, feathered tails. They look ridiculous. Like, our assumption, you know, because that's subject to change too. But the current assumption, and it's widely accepted now. Because they apparently found a, uh, a velociraptor skeleton where you could still see the, I don't know what they're called, like maybe indentations. You could still see where the feathers had been. And that's found on birds, like the like where the quills go in. So they fa- they've actually found velociraptors now that have those, which proves that they did have wings. They did have feathers of some kind. And so it immediately outdates all of these depictions of velociraptors. Like, I bet if you ask the average person right now, like, draw a velociraptor. They're going to draw what they saw in Jurassic Park. And I don't know how this passed me by. Like, I feel like this is something that I should have just known. And it apparently, this, this apparently, like, was confirmed in 2007. And, you know, I had a lot going on around that time. So maybe that's the reason. But it's funny how that just completely changes everything. We've gotten a little bit confident, a little bit arrogant. We can't, We think we know what dinosaurs look like. And then we find out that, oh no, they look completely different. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's another one of those things. Though somebody had that idea. People have been calling dinosaurs birds for a long time. And then something comes out that validates it. But it's funny, even with that, though, you, you got to give people credit. They demand it. Like the guy who discovers a dinosaur or he discovers a new fact about dinosaurs, he wants credit and he deserves it. I'm not saying he doesn't, but it's just kind of funny that even with that, you know, it seems like few people are truly selfless. But then again, we might not hear about them. You know, yeah, some selfless people end up becoming famous for it. You know, whether it's Mother Teresa. I think she's controversial. I don't remember why. Seems like the last few times I've heard Mother Teresa come up, someone's been like, well, you know that she did... Gandhi. I think someone has a story about him, too. I'm sure all these people have stories. But anyway, people who have been... Whether it's true or not, these people who have become world-famous people for their selflessness, you know, not everybody gets that much credit for it. So it's like, I think there are people who, they're selfless, but you're never going to hear about it. Because sometimes you do have to be assertive if you want credit for something. Sometimes you have to ask for it. And you see that with every subject. You know, the person who discovers something about dinosaurs is going to want credit for that. The person who writes a given guitar riff wants credit. They stole my riff, you know. The person who goes to a restaurant first wants credit. <laughs> you know, just it goes on and on. And I'm I'm the kind of person who likes getting credit. Like I completely understand crediting people and receiving credit it feels good it's as simple as that like when you get away from ego and all that it's like it feels good to be given credit for something and it's it's actually not hard to do either you know it's not hard to give somebody credit but people are afraid to do it and it's such a dirty feeling 
know, it's such a dirty feeling when you take something from somebody and you don't say where you got it from. Not that you have to do it all the time, every time, but it's something that people do often, like where they just think like, I'm going to take this and I guess I don't need to give credit. Maybe they like the idea that somebody thinks they did it or they came up with it. But that's such a cheap and dirty feeling. I feel like I had something else that I read. I feel like there was something else involving history or science. There were the dinosaurs. There was the European history. It's not important enough. If I, if I can't remember it, it's not important. If I can't remember it, it must not be important. But I think about discoveries like that just because they do rock people's foundations. And so much argument is based around what's right, not just right now, like not just what we should do, but who has the right interpretation of history. You can see where that's actually one of the big battles going on in our society. And I think it's always going on, but right now it's particularly big where there's a lot of people arguing about what the true history of the United States is. And that's an existential argument. You know, it's an existential debate. Because that has the potential, and I mean, not just the potential, because we can see the impact it's having. You know, that can cause, that can pretty much shake your entire foundation. And you know, going back to the dinosaurs, if you were to ask a lot of people, you know what? We can have reptilian looking dinosaurs. Like we can go back to the old looking velociraptor. Like we can forget that velociraptors actually look like ridiculous birds. Just say the word. Just give just nod your head. We're going to no, we're going to do a vote. We're going to do a vote. And people are going to vote on whether or not they want to believe that velociraptors were covered in a bunch of feathers. I bet most people would vote to go back to the Jurassic Park style velociraptor. I bet people would rather just believe that. If they were allowed to anonymously vote and decide what kind of velociraptor we're going to believe in, I bet they would go back to the old one. They want dinosaurs to be like Jurassic Park. They want dinosaurs to be the same way that they always believed they were. So that tells you about something about people. <laughs> you know, it's a hypothetical scenario, but I do believe people might do that. You know, because so much of what people believe is just what they want to believe. And that's an obvious point to make, but it's true. Because, and I say that, you know, using that, that dinosaur pull, doing a, doing a little dinosaur, dinosaur pull. I say that from the point of view that, like, when I found out about these feathered dinosaurs, I didn't like it either. Like, I was reading about this recently. I was just, I hadn't, it's been a long time, a very long time since I've read about dinosaurs. But when I was reading about it, and I was like, I didn't know they confirmed this. I didn't know they had... Uh, confirm that velociraptors have a bunch of feathers and i was i was hoping i was hoping to read like this is still just a theory but no they they're pretty sure as sure as you can be that that's what they looked like but i didn't like the news i was like I, I wish they looked the way i thought they looked and so if i feel that way i imagine a lot of people do But I mean, that's the crazy thing about the time we live in is it's not just that people are dissecting what's happening each day as new events happen, and everybody seems to have a completely different point of view on it. Not just a different point of view, but conflicting point of views. It's not just that that's going on. It's that we're doing that to every stage of history that we possibly can. We're all just constantly going through history. And once again, giving conflicting points of view. And we get so convinced that what we've always heard, what we've always believed, the way that we thought dinosaurs looked, we get so convinced that that's just true. 
You know, we we became so convinced that the dinosaurs looked the way they did they did in Jurassic Park that it didn't even cross our mind that they might not. You know, we become so. I mean, I, I, there we go. I remember the the third thing that I read recently. And it was, they found in Scandinavia, I don't remember if it was Sweden, I want to say it was Sweden, it might have been Norway, it was either one or, one or the other, it was Sweden or Norway, they found evidence, they found a reference carved, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but in a woman's burial plot, they found Insha Allah, a reference to Allah carved into something she was buried with. It might have just said Allah, but it was some sort of Islamic reference to Allah. And they believe it's evidence of a relationship or trading between the Middle East and Scandinavia at that time. Once again, earlier than was previous than was previously believed. So it's another one of those things that kind of blows your mind. You know, I know I brought up a while back where they found in a temple. I believe it was a Tibetan Buddhist temple, something like that, where they found that one of the gods was dressed in the Greek garb of the time. And it was blatant. It wasn't a coincidence. It showed that they had had some kind of contact with the Greeks and actually depicted one of their gods as Greek in their own temple. And so it's that kind of idea too. Like when you find out that a Scandinavian was buried with with an Islamic reference of some kind. An object that had been inscribed with a reference to Allah. You know, it just kind of blows your mind, you know, that contact was going on. And the smallest thing can completely change our perception. The smallest artifact, the smallest discovery can completely shift our entire perception of history which is why we should never be too confident in it. You know, I find that this happens with organized crime research, where, especially earlier on, there was so much mystery. There were so few informants. Most of the information you're getting on it is either coming from people recollecting it decades later or from outsiders like police who didn't actually have an inside view. And what I've found through my own research, what I've learned from talking to other researchers, is that just the smallest discovery can completely shift everything. One thing, one event, one connection can completely change your understanding or, or you know, better than that, lead to other information. Like you never, I think that'd be a good way to look at it. You never know what's going to be a new lead in research. Something that seems relatively minor very well could be a lead that opens up a completely new understanding. Or just something that's interesting. It doesn't even have to be mind-blowing. It could just lead you somewhere that's interesting, unexpectedly. And so that's how I feel about history, too. And it's why I never want to be too confident about it. You know, I have a certain... I think you have to have a certain faith in history... And I don't know how healthy it is to continually reevaluate history. Like what I see going on now is not healthy to me. Like seeing a nation engaged in a bitter fight over its own history. I don't know. I don't see the plus side in it. Not that people shouldn't be able to offer their, and I'm not saying people shouldn't be able to offer different perspectives, but I guess whenever I see that, I'm like, these can probably be reconciled. You know, these possibly fit together. Like these two different points of view on American history. I think you can reconcile them. I don't think they necessarily cancel each other out. But that's always the approach, is that these things cancel each other out. And I don't think that's productive. I think talking about it can be productive, especially if you take the point of view that, okay, here's a perspective on history. Here's a, here's a different perspective on history. They're at odds with each other a little bit in some way. 
but can their perspectives interlock with each other at all? And so like that's my own approach to American history, for example. And it's my way of saying it's not a matter of good or bad. It's that good and bad are just in this continually interlocking process. Very pretentious way to put it. But it is kind of how I see it. So we're worried about the future, which is why we're always guessing what's going to happen. We're always prophesying, casually prophesying. And for me, it's never a good feeling. You know, when a prophecy comes true, especially if it's one that I, like I said, that it's like complaining in advance. I'm going to complain about this thing that hasn't happened because I can imagine it happening. And that pisses me off. And then when it does happen, though, it's always kind of a sinking feeling. Like, oh, I was right. It's like winning an argument that wasn't worth winning. And you're like, oh, no. I really didn't want to actually be right about that. I can't actually be happy about this. But we, we do that continually. You know, we're just continually predicting, guessing. This is going to happen. This might happen. But when the way we think about the past honestly isn't that much different. The way we think about history honestly isn't that much different than the way we think about the future. Where with, with the past, it seems like we're guessing almost as much. Maybe not quite as much. But it does seem like we're doing a lot of guessing. We're doing a lot of assuming. It takes a lot of hubris. In the same way that it takes hubris to worry about the future... I think it takes a lot of hubris to worry about the past because that's kind of what we're doing. When we're engaged in these arguments and fights about history and what really happened, what didn't happen, what happened and what that means, I think we're worrying about it. We're worrying about events that have already happened. And it's not that they're irrelevant. I'm obviously interested in history. I would never dismiss history or say it's irrelevant at all. But I don't know that worrying it is that worrying about it is helpful at all. It does feel a lot like worrying about the future, but maybe even more impotent because you can't actually do anything about it. Because the idea is that, oh, if we get history 100% right, if we frame history 100% right, it's going to help us more today or it's going to help us in the future and I don't think you want to get too hung up on that. I don't think you really help today or help the future when you try to use the past to do that. It should inform you, but when you try to make that the focal point, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I see so, I see so much of it. I mean, it's, it's sort of the whole thing about World War II where we're just so hung up on using World War II as the only example of bad things happening. And I do that myself sometimes. You know, it's, it's so easy to do. But we decided that World War II was our ultimate example of good and evil, of political division, of what can happen. And so now we compare everything to it. And I, I, I can say that that's been unhelpful for a long time. It's been unhelpful for a very long time to measure everything in relation to World War II. It's insane. And I think it is a form of that. It is a form of trying to use the past to, in theory, benefit today or benefit the future, but I don't think it works. And if it doesn't work with World War II, it's not going to work with anything else. Like, if even, world, if, if, even, <laughs> if even using World War II as your example of precedent, like, let's say we're in court and you need, you need to cite precedent, that's how people use World War II. It's like, this happened. This is what could happen. This sets a precedent for today. 
but I think it's worn out its welcome. It's not an effective argument anymore. Not because World War II is anything other than what it was, but people have just used that argument so often, and it's, it is the law of diminishing returns. Where if you use the same argument too much, especially publicly, especially if everybody does, because that's what we see. When everybody uses the same argument over and over again, and the parameters of that argument get wider and wider, what do you expect to happen? It's going to lose its potency. And I don't know what it is about today that's so difficult for people to handle. Like, I don't know why you can't just use exactly what's going on right now as your argument, as your basis. But people need to be able to contextualize something. Like, they can't just describe their enemy exactly as they are. They have to cite this precedent and be like, my enemy is kind of like these guys from 80 years ago. And I think they're going to do the same thing if given the chance. They can't just say, this is what my enemy is. This is a description of them. This is what they do. This is what I think they want to do. And I want to stop it. It has to be framed around history. And when somebody does use the Third Reich comparison, when somebody does use the tired old Hitler comparison... I want to say, you know, shouldn't just describing the person exactly as they are be enough? Like, shouldn't you be able to describe this politician you hate exactly as they are without comparing them to Hitler? Because if they're truly comparable to Hitler, the stuff they're doing wrong should stand on its own two feet, right? Be interested to see if people keep using that one. I mean, some people will, but we can see where 9-11 gets used very broadly now, too. We, we've seen where in the last couple of years, last year and a half, where 9-11 gets invoked for all kinds of reasons, all kinds of crazy reasons. There was somebody who compared unvaccinated people to 9-11 terrorists. They said, like, they're causing the same amount of harm. They're putting people's lives at risk by being unvaccinated. So they're kind of like the 9-11 terrorists. I saw people making the comparison between the January 6th riot and 9-11 as well. Equally bizarre. Not quite as bizarre, actually. No, not quite as bizarre as comparing the unvaccinated to 9-11. But it's kind of the same thing. It's like if this thing is bad enough on its own... Shouldn't that be how you define it? Like, what makes you need to compare it? What What is it that makes you need to have this comparison just so people know for sure? Oh, in case you didn't notice, this bad thing is a lot like this other bad thing. That just seems manipulative from the start to me. Because, like, if somebody down the street shoots somebody, I'm not going to need to use the argument of... Hey, somebody down the street shot somebody, and you know that this person shot somebody, and that's a crime. And because somebody else shot somebody and it was bad, this guy who shot somebody down the street, that also makes it bad. No, you, you don't need to do that. All you need to say in that case is a guy shot somebody down the street, and everybody says, oh, that's a problem. That's illegal. That's a, a sin. That's horrible. There's no need for comparison. And so if something is truly bad enough, it should speak for itself. And so anytime you see somebody making a comparison, unless it truly is just perfect, you know, but even then I would say, why use it? And it's not like I'm anti-comparison. Obviously, a lot of my thinking on this in the way that this show is, is just finding analogies, finding comparisons between things. But when you see it being done manipulatively, that's what bothers me. Because I would say nine times out of ten, if you see somebody making that sort of comparison, the person doing it knows it's manipulative deep down. Everybody who sees it knows it's manipulative. And if it's manipulative, why would you even give it the time of day? 
Why would you even think about it? But I'm a fan of talking about history. I'm, I'm a fan of challenging history. And I think we should do that continually. I think we should be continually trying to challenge history, but not in a manipulative way. You know, you shouldn't be challenging history just so you can pull the rug out from somebody else. It should just be from a legitimate interest in learning more. Because when we find, even when you find something out, even if it's very minor, it can be earth shaking. Finding out that Europeans were in North America far earlier than is believed, that's earth shaking to me. It doesn't have any real implications, although it kind of does. You know, it definitely changes our understanding of immigration. Not that there were Europeans living here permanently. I don't, I don't know what the story is, but I, I, don't, I, I should really look into it more to, to be bringing it up a couple times on this show. But it's just one of those things where it, it, it is kind of earth-shaking, just kind of earth-shaking at the very least. Kind of earth-shaking. And I think that's why we have to be careful about it, though. I think that's why you, you don't want to use history as a weapon. Like, I wouldn't want to see somebody use that as a weapon. Not that, they, not that I can even imagine a use for it. Not that they, I can even imagine how they would do it. But it's like when you find something out like that. I mean, finding out that velociraptors have wings. Why don't we edit Jurassic Park? Why don't we petition Hollywood and say, hey, you know, Jurassic Park is pseudoscience. Jurassic Park does not accurately depict the velociraptor. Either edit in feathers or we're going to boycott since we're boycotting all pseudoscience, since we're branding things pseudoscience, it seems like pseudoscience to me to depict velociraptors differently than they actually were. If Steven Spielberg can edit out guns from E.T. and add in walkie-talkies, which he did, I think we can edit in feathers. I think we can make these velociraptors in Jurassic Park look like stupid birds. I think that's about the only way you could use that as a weapon. It's the only way you could use the revelation that velociraptors were feathered as a weapon, is to like try to ruin <laughs> ruin Jurassic Park. But I mean, what's funny about all this, though, is just that people do have these different takes. Like, that's one of the funniest things about being a human to me is just that you're guaranteed to find somebody who believes something else. It could be about the way the mind works. It could be about fitness. It could be about which place has the best burrito in town. It could be about what good music is like you're always going to find something and believe something else could be history could be somebody has a different belief about what took place at a certain point in history based on the limited evidence available and people get upset about that people fight about it people are bitter rivals people get in those same people get in rivalries about the future you know, people are like, oh, man, like things are going to be this way. And somebody else is like, no, they're going to be this way. People get in fights. I mean, that's pretty much what a lot of politics are. A lot of political arguments, political, are basically just, I think this is going to happen. Yeah, well, I think this is going to happen. Well, this is going to happen if you get power. No, this is going to happen if you get power. A lot of it is just kind of making these bold, audacious declarations about the future while trying to influence the future. So that's kind of what politics are. It's just kind of arguing about prophecies. And it's not too much of a surprise that like the prophet 
is close to the king. He's used for political purposes. The prophet often has a political role in stories, and people don't like it. They see where the prophet has influenced the king's politics. The king is making all of his decisions politically based on what the prophet tells him. So you can see where politics are basically that. They're not as cool. Politicians aren't as cool as prophets. But you can see a lot of their role is, is not so much the king as much as it is the prophet. I think this is going to happen. If you vote for him, this is going to happen. If you vote for me, this is going to happen. What we need to be worrying about is this. You see where climate change is a big part of the platform. What do you think that is? Even though it's based on something, I'm not dismissing climate change. God forbid God forbid you dismiss climate change. But no, you don't even have to have to dismiss climate change to see it as a form of prophecy. The prophets might know what they're talking about. You know, I, I believe prophets are right sometimes. So you can see where prophecy plays a big role, where it's like, we, we, we're going to have to worry about the end of the world. The world is ending. Like if you were just to write this, like if you were to take away all modernity and write this as if it was a passage in the Bible, be like, uh, this prophet claims, the, the king's prophet claims that the world is going to end soon in fire and it's going to be inhospitable. Uninhabitable. And so you must support the king and, and do what he says. Use less water on your farm. Not eat this. Eat less meat. I mean, you could fit that into a biblical story. It doesn't sound far off at all. But because we have this contemporary narcissism, we just think this is how it is. And it's totally different from those stories. And it, you know, it might well be. It might be true. It might be true that the world has, at least the earth, has the potential to die sooner rather than later because of us. That might be true, but it's still a prophecy. It's still this argument about the future. But the problem is, is, is it does feel like things that should shake our understanding more don't really get much traction or much conversation. And I'm always fascinated by finding out that certain people had contact much earlier than previously believed. And that there was even a degree of cross-pollination. And we don't know what's buried down there either. You know, we don't know what's buried just below the surface of where we've been able to go so far. Maybe nothing. But, you know, it's always important to remind yourself that so much of our understanding of the past as well as the future is just pure speculation. And you're prophesying equally as much about the past as you are the future. And it's no surprise that you're doing the same thing about today. I mean, you're, you're pretty much guessing most of the time as to what's going on around you at any given time, on the, the very moment that you're alive. So much of what you're doing is assuming what's going on elsewhere. And you get glimpses of it. People tell you where they are. You read the news about something that's happening somewhere else. You see what somebody else is doing on social media or you call somebody on the phone and you hear what they're doing. But that's the most you're going to get. Everything else is just you having faith that things are playing out the way you think they're playing out everywhere else. And this probably sounds like stone teenager on mushrooms for the first time. But hey, if my thinking's on that level, that's fine too. If my late night sober thinking 
is on the level of a stone teenager. I don't think that's a horrible thing. That's one of the reasons why I, I just I try not to invest too much in the past. I try not to invest too much in the future. I mean, you have to to some degree, and I care about the past. But even just investing in the present, like letting your anxiety manifest, you know, basically letting like anxiety manifest in response to things that you can't see, that you can't touch. And that's probably the reason why my prophesying for the most part is just complaining about things that haven't happened or things that happened in the past for that matter, because I do some of that too. But no, I think that's why a lot of my just predicting probably comes from that sort of, oh, there's going to be things that happen that I don't like. And they're usually petty things. Like in my case, I do a lot more assumption about petty things that are going to happen, things that occur that I'm going to have a petty response to. But in some way, that's fun. Because it doesn't end up being earth-shaking. That's the nice thing about caring about petty things. Is if, if you care about petty things and you know they're petty, the nice thing about them is they're not really earth-shaking. It's just sort of like, I predicted that this thing was going to happen, and it did. And it sucks. And that's all there is to it. Because what you learn, though, is that people are petty about even the big things. Like when you think about the way politicians talk, the way partisans talk, they're being very petty about things that they say are more important than anything. Pundits, partisans, politicians, all these types of people... They act like they're talking about the most serious things in the world. And I would agree with them that those many of the things they talk about are. As far as our human lives go, they often are the most serious things. But they do so in such a petty way that it's funny. Like they can't seem to resist the pettiness. So it shows you that it never ends. I mentioned earlier how... People are like, oh, your teenagers are so petty, caring about this band and who listened to that band first, whether that band sold out. And then you get into adulthood where a bunch of people who have kids and work full-time jobs are being really petty about restaurants and who knows about this. And I know a little place that other people don't know. It's my little secret. It's where I go to get the best burrito and I don't tell anybody. You know, adults do that, but then you look at like the the most important adults. And they're being really petty about you know, life change issues that affect everybody. They're being petty about the end of the world. And if people are petty even about the end of the world, that should tell you that they can be petty about everything and they are. So you got to choose your pettiness. That's what I've realized. It's like you're going to be petty one way or another. So you might as well do it in a fun way. You might as well make your pettiness something fun. And that's humor. I think if you have a sense of humor about your pettiness, that's where a lot of comedy comes from. Not even professional comedy, just people laughing, people who enjoy something that makes them laugh. You know, I think often the things that make us laugh are somebody observing and talking about something petty in just the right way to make it somehow profound. But it's usually something mundane. It's usually something minor. And it seems like somebody talking about something minor in a very petty way makes it that <laughs> it just makes it you know that much more attractive so yeah you got to choose your pettiness and you got to know when you're being petty
land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 